On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we look at the life and film career of the always unique character actor Steve Buscemi. Today, we're looking at Robert Benton's 1991 gangster epic, Billy Bathgate. Let's go. Welcome to How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is Ice Pick Willie, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Doug, who told you about that? You need to keep that. <laughs> that's not a that's not a name I like to put out on the streets, if you know what I mean. Ice, Ice Pick Willie. It's a pretty good one. I did a, a search online for a search of gangster nicknames, Liam, mm. and Ice Pick Willie was the one I found most amusing. So that's you. You're Ice Pick Willie. I guess that's better than being Pickled Joe or something like that. Liam, did you ever have a nickname? Oh God! You're gonna. <laughs> oh man. Let's let's put it this way. I've I've very rarely had a positive nickname. Uh huh. And, and if I did, they would just be like weird versions of my name. Like some people would call me Lee. Uh, a few people for a while thought it was funny to call me Um. Since everyone would call me Lee, they call me Um. No, but... sorry. Why did why did they call you Um? I don't understand. Stop it. Stop. No, I really don't understand. Well, because it, my, if my name is Liam. And everyone calls oh! me Lee. They were like calling me. I um. see. I get it now. Okay. And they would do it like they were um um yeah yeah whatever whatever. But those are like <laughs> those are all like nice nicknames compared to the ones I've had in the past. All right, Le- which are <laughs> no fucking way. <laughs> can't can't see how it would be harmful to let that out into the world in some way. I, I mean that's I mean I think Lee is kind of a fun. That's a fun little variation on your name to call you Lee. Let's let, actually. I will give you one because I don't care. I'm an adult. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Do you remember the <laughs> Sega game Bonk? Uh, it, it was actually a TurboGrafx 16 game. Yeah. Bonk's Adventure. Yes. Yeah. So I was called Bonk for a long time because my head was so big. <laughs> Bonk. Yep. <laughs> you know, Bonk was a little cave boy. Yeah, right? and he had a huge head, and he would hit he, things with his big head. And in fact, he had like a little power up where his head, his head would get even bigger and redder, and he would be able to knock things with his giant skull, Liam. Well, unlike you, I didn't grow up with a TurboGrafx sixteen because I didn't have a silver spoon in my mouth. I was I just read a lot of video game magazines. <laughs> <laughs> that is something that I did have a lot of growing up. Uh, but uh, but that's a, that's interestingly, I'll try to remember this nickname. <laughs> I'll try to put it in my Rolodex of things about Liam to mention. You know what's <laughs> you know what's frustrating about that too is that like that was the that was the least annoying one I could give you. Like there's actually worse ones. All right. Well, bonk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's talk about Steve Buscemi, the actor, uh, Liam O'Donnell, a.k.a. Bonk. Um, <laughs> here's a little article I read recently. It says, Terror returns to Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia for Halloween nights. Now, listeners may be like, why are you mentioning this? Liam, tell me a little bit about this Eastern State Penitentiary, since you are a Philadelphia boy at heart. Uh, it's a big part of the sort of Philadelphia culture because... Um, they have a lot of events there. Uh, historically, it was one of the first 
prisons. In fact, I think it was the first Panopticon prison in America, uh, which, by the way, is a horrible way to imprison people developed by Quakers, hence the connection mm-hmm. to Philadelphia. Uh, Can you explain, actually, what a Panopticon is to our listeners who might not know? Yeah, there's a guard tower in the center surrounded by visible uh, prisoners' cells, and the idea is from your cell, you can't tell if you're being watched by the guards, thus recreating the view of God yeah. that you would be... It's a goddamn nightmare. <laughs> yeah, you, the, the idea would be you would feel so watched all the time that would recreate the feeling that... That God was watching you, and you might, you know, uh, repent. To be fair, it is actually more humane than our current system because it's based on the idea that prison might actually help you, like, repent of something, which is <laughs> actually uh, uh, upsettingly more humanizing than our current view of prisoners and prison. But whatever. Point is, it's fucked up, but it's been closed for a long time, but it's historical. So it's it's been open for historical purposes, but they also have events there. And this Halloween Nights event has been going on for... Maybe 20 years now? I, I certainly went four or five <laughs> times when I was uh, in Philadelphia. Liam, I don't want to correct you, but here in the article it says, marking the 30th season of Halloween celebrations. 30 years. At Eastern State. <laughs> but it's it's a big deal. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the bigger ones in the country considering it's not – like famous famous you know what i mean like there there are those halloween things that people travel for there's some in florida there's some in los angeles there's some in texas that are such a big uh sort of production hollywood level production that people you know they make it a big deal to go to these things this is not that and yet ticket sales wise it is one of the bigger events in the country and i think it's it's the appeal of the prison that makes it like a more fun experience After suspending its long-running and immensely popular Terror Behind the Walls attraction in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it was announced on Tuesday morning that the historic site will unveil Halloween Nights at Eastern State Penitentiary this year. Halloween Nights will be a festival staged in the site's cell blocks and courtyards with 15 attractions, two haunted houses, four immersive walkthrough experiences, two live performances, four themed bar and lounges, laser shows, and video projections. It's just something in the back of my mind that's like, this was a prison where people were like fucking tortured and now this stuff is happening within it. But the reason I'm talking about it, Liam, is this next part. A self-guided audio tour of the location's architecture by Steve Buscemi, as well as a guided flashlight walking tour of the hospital wing and two exhibits on the modern criminal justice system will also be available. Two exhibits on the modern criminal justice system. That's interesting. But that's not the interesting thing about what I just said. It's that our man Steve Buscemi... Uh, or actually, you know what? I have to kind of correct myself a little because I think his name is actually Steve Buscemi, right? Isn't that correct? I think that's right, actually. We probably should fucking fix that considering we have a podcast about him. Anyway, a self-guided audio tour of the location's architecture by Steve Buscemi. That sounds interesting to me, Liam. I mean, I've done um, the guided tour before when it wasn't Halloween nights, and it is interesting. And I, and I will say the folks who run it are not maintaining this prison as like a uh, as a uh, you know like uh, homage to prisons. It's very much run by people who want us to know how horrible this place was as a maybe a reminder to not do it again, and sure. hopefully maybe a corrective on how we think of prisons now. Um, and, and that might not be everyone. Like uh, you know, it's a nonprofit run by a board, so I don't I don't know the minds of everyone involved. But my experience going through was not oh this is awesome. Prisons are so cool. <laughs> it was. <laughs> very much like look at this horror we did and then you know sort of feeling like the people who ran this 
had a more humanistic idea than what we currently do is like really upsetting because it's yeah. a it's a real sort of like oh no what's happening now liam have you ever seen a movie called reservoir dogs oh i have and i'm sure we'll cover it on this very show this very show because it's one of the uh the most important i would say roles in the career of steve Buscemi. but this is an interesting bit of uh of knowledge that steve himself uh, put out into the world when he was on James Corden's The Late Late Show, the beloved James Corden's Late Late Show recently. He was on there and talking about Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, and he spouted a, uh, a theory that I've heard that people talk about in the past, that his character from Reservoir Dogs, who uh, I think a lot of people would think died off screen, spoiler alert, at the very end of the film, that perhaps he didn't die. A quote from Steve Buscemi here says, I don't know if anyone else thinks about this, but because my character, Mr. Pink in Reservoir Dogs, was such a cheapskate and he didn't like to tip, I thought it was poetic justice that in my next film with Quentin, I play a waiter. I even like to think that maybe Mr. Pink got away somehow in Reservoir Dogs and he's hiding out as the Buddy Holly waiter and he probably gets tipped terribly. That's his fate. What do you think, Liam? Shared universes. We know that Quentin Tarantino likes to have shared universes, characters intersecting with other films, people re uh, referring to characters in one film and another film. Do you think it's possible that Mr. Pink made it to uh, to be the waiter at the, at the Buddy Holly waiter in uh, Pulp Fiction? It feels unlikely to me, but I do like the idea. I mean, it, it, is it outside of a possibility for... Uh, Tarantino to have some like thing in his mind where it's all like one universe together. Like, no, though I think he'd have to use CGI because I, I don't think he thinks all of his actors are playing the same characters. So we'd have to, you know, at some point have six versions of Samuel L. Jackson in a room thanks to CGI or something like that. Liam, are you a big fan of the television series Rick and Morty? Uh, it's funny. I, I wouldn't say a big fan, but you know, I'm I'm not going out to get a flat brim Rick hat anytime soon, or a pickle Rick tattoo, or some shit like that. But uh, but this, I, I think it's pretty funny. You know what people uh, say about this show, Rick and Morty, is that its fans are terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, I, I I haven't met that many Rick and Morty fans. Maybe I just don't interact with that many. Um, uh, you know, late twenties, late oh, twenty sorry. something yes. white males, I guess. But uh, but I have seen enough of the merch to think that if people are buying that shit, then they must be pretty bad people. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> buying merch of any kinds is bad, if you ask me, Liam. Why would you want to have something that represents the things that you like on your body? Stop it! Stop it! I mean, the level of the merch is so ridiculous that I'm like, what kind of jerk offs are buying this shit? If you thought you could make a quick buck doing a Rick and Morty themed rough cut shirt, do you think you'd do it? It's not our vibe, no. <laughs> Liam, the reason I bring up uh, Rick and Morty, the beloved cartoon series, is because recently they had an episode called A Rick Convenient Truth that featured a nice audio cameo, a, a voice done by Steve Buscemi in it. Whoa, I didn't know that. So it seems to me like maybe we'll have to watch ourselves a little Rick and Morty created by Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon on the Adult Swim uh, Cartoon Network. I'm, I'm okay with that. That's fine. Yeah. I think that the show is better than its fans, though I do have problems with basically everyone involved with it to some extent or another because that's what it's like to live in the year 2021. You know what I used to like, Liam? Justin Roiland many years ago created a cartoon series called The House of Cosby's which was about uh, this gentleman who was cloning Bill Cosby. This is before a lot of the things we know about Bill Cosby now came to light necessarily. But it was called The House of Cosby's, and it really meant that a lot of people could do terrible Bill Cosby impressions. What do you think about that? 
I never heard of that before. Really? I am. I was actually. I'm not joking. I was a massive fan of House of Cosby's. Maybe something we can investigate on a different podcast. <laughs> I can't see what that would be likely. Liam, the reason we're here today, believe it or not, is to talk about gangster movies, and in fact, a specific gangster movie, 1991's Billy Bathgate. Had you heard of this film, Liam, before I told you we had to watch it for this podcast? Yeah, I felt like I had. I felt like I've heard people talk about it, maybe not extensively, but enough that it was like in the cultural conversation. In 1991, it was definitely something that people were talking about. And then by 1992, nobody was talking about it anymore. Uh, in fact, this is something that we're going to discuss right after the break, which is that in the early 90s, people were suddenly fascinated with the idea of gangsters. And there was a big flurry of movies all about gangsters. And then people were like, you know what? We don't really care about gangsters after all. And then no one ever made a gangster movie ever. <laughs> yeah, it's just a dead genre. It's crazy. Well, I mean, it, I guess it does pop up every once in a while, but never as big as it was in 1991, unless you count when it was big in like the 1930s and 40s when it was actually big, probably because it was contemporaneous to actual real gangsters, just like the people in the movies. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, I'm assuming the 90s thing was because of Dick Tracy, right? Dick Tracy I, came out and then it was like everybody wanted gangsters. I don't know if, if you can actually trace it necessarily exactly <laughs> to that, but I was absolutely a huge Dick Tracy head in the year 1990 when that film came out and I was so hyped for that big ridiculous movie and I saw it opening night in theaters Liam I was so excited for Dick Tracy uh and that sounds ridiculous now but believe me they were pushing it hard in that year when it came out and even though I didn't know what a Warren Beatty was as I've said on Twitter I knew that there was going to be a man in that movie with a big head and a little face and I was like, I got to see the man with the little face. And I did. <laughs> I went in. And you know what was funny? We got to the movie. It was a little late. And I remember walking down that little aisle while, while all the lights were off. And all you could see was the big-headed man with the little face. And I was like, yes, there he is. Dad, I didn't, I didn't miss him. I didn't miss the little face man. Uh, and I was so excited that it just carried me through the rest of the movie, which I don't have any memories of all at, at all about any of it, except for maybe the guy with the flathead. Uh, but anyway, I, apparently my memories of Dick Tracy is that it had some people with some weird faces in it. I mean, isn't that the main attraction of the film? Was like that they were like, so the thing about Dick Tracy is everyone looks weird. So let's just yeah. like make everyone look weird. And yeah. that was that was it. That's the whole fucking movie. I, was there yeah. anything else? I, I mean, Warren Beatty was apparently uh, involved with Madonna. That was the other big appeal. Is like, wow, that guy's actually with Madonna. That's crazy. And that's it. That's, that's all that's worth knowing about that movie. Well, I believe Stephen Sondheim wrote music for the movie. So that's memorable. And it did have a great cast, including... Uh, Dustin Hoffman, who was the star of Billy Bathgate, he plays, I think, Mumbles, or someone who mumbles in Dick Tracy. It all comes back to Dick Tracy, if you ask me, but I'll tell you what, we're not here to talk about Dick Tracy, Bonk. We're here to talk about Billy Bathgate, <laughs> and we'll do that right after this. You're my prodigy. You're Mr. Schultz's girl. No, I'm not his girl. He's my gangster. Now he's waiting for the moment. It will all be his. I'm so nuts about you. I can't see straight. Organization. $20 million a year, you're gonna run it like some candy store. Dustin Hoffman, Nicole Kidman, Lauren Dean, and Bruce Willis in Billy Bathgate. Now there goes a kid with luck. 
in the year 1935, a teen named Billy Bathgate finds first love while becoming the protege of fledgling gangster Dutch Schultz. It's 1991's Billy Bathgate, Liam, uh, directed by Robert Benton, who also was quite famously the writer of Bonnie and Clyde, What's Up Doc, uh, Superman, the, the first Superman film, and Kramer vs. Kramer, which he also directed, also the director of Nobody's Fool, Twilight, The Human Stain. A, a pretty good pedigree, both as a writer and director, and speaking of a good pedigree, this film was written, adapted from a book uh, by, well, the book wasn't by, but it was adapted by Tom Stoppard, Sir Tom Stoppard, uh, the writer of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, among others. Uh, I mean, one of the most famous, uh, really, writers of both plays and films, uh, currently living on the planet Earth, uh, even though I recently found out that he considers himself a soft libertarian, so fuck that guy. Uh, but, <laughs> but Tom Stoppard, Robert Benton, and not only does it have this very name director and writer, also has an amazing cast starring Dustin Hoffman as Dutch Schultz, uh, Nicole Kidman as the female lead Drew Preston. She actually was nominated for a Golden Globe for her supporting performance here. Bruce Willis, Stephen Hill, Stanley Tucci, Subasemi, all even um, even aside from the, these names, there's like recognizable faces that pop up as the supporting players all throughout the movie. And we also have Lauren Dean here as Billy Bathgate being uh, the lead actor, I would say, of the film, even though I may have said that Dustin Hoffman is, but you'll see why that's confusing in just a few moments. Liam O'Donnell, Billy Bathgate, a movie that made a lot of noise in 1991, has sure. not really been talked about much since. What did you think of it? I want to, for a moment, bracket the very, I think, important issue of Lauren Dean. Yes. And I want to just put it aside. Let's not think about Lauren Dean for a few minutes. and then No problem. I didn't throughout the movie. So. And, then, and, then, <laughs> and then consider together, Doug, what the fuck went wrong here? Because if you put aside Lauren Dean, right, mm -hmm. this movie should be fucking amazing. The, between the cast, the writing, the director, like even the idea of it, like what it's supposed to be dealing with and exploring uh, even this realm of like history and focusing not like Dutch Schultz is not an obvious player in this particular history. Like everything about this screams, this is going to be an interesting movie to watch. And that is exactly not what this is. It, and, and I could really... My inclination watching a movie like this, Doug, is to really shit on it and be like, this movie's terrible. It's not that the movie's terrible. It's very competent. But it is one of the most boring, competent movies I've watched in a long time. I can't remember the last time I willingly sat through the entirety of a film that was this incapable of being interesting to me. And there's not really a moment I could point to that was like, this was bad. With, again, we are currently bracketing Lauren Dean. <laughs> There's nothing that I would say is obviously bad. Like this is this sucks. This really shit the bed. Anything like that. And yet I was not interested. I just wasn't plainly interested for most of the film, with a few exceptions that we can touch on in a little bit. Uh, there were a few moments here and there that kind of grabbed me a little bit, or or at least had my interest somewhat. A lot of this film just never feels like it gets going at all. It doesn't no. feel like mm -hmm. the movie ever fucking started. Yeah, Lauren Dean, he's kind of like Forrest Gump in this movie. That <laughs> He just kind of wanders into the picture, uh, like wanders amongst all these real-life gangsters, even though he's not based on a real person, has this experience, and then just moves on, and it's just like, wow, 
he that guy Billy Bathgate he touched upon these interesting things, but he certainly isn't interesting no. himself. It well, is very the, strange. Let me just say the reason I bracketed that is because everything about him in this movie is bad, but I wanted to bracket it to say I don't know that that's Lauren Dean's fault. It's I'm right. unclear that it's his fault. This character is not written to be interesting. He's written to be passive, and maybe there's a way to be passive that is more compelling than Lauren Dean is. I don't know. I'm not an expert on bad characters, but I will say the way that this plays out, this is a terrible character. This is not fun to watch. Everything about him is bad, but can Lauren Dean, whether that's his fault or not, can Billy Bathgate ruin Billy Bathgate, or could this movie be still have him in it and somehow be compelling otherwise because right now it's not liam i'm going to tell you something about lauren dean that's way more interesting than his performance in this movie sure (laughs) do it this is from his wikipedia entry lauren dean has been repeatedly impersonated by suspected con artist lauren dean breckenridge the third the sheriff's department in orange county california has accused breckenridge of impersonating dean and defrauding drug rehabilitation centers across the u.s as well as committing the theft of seventy-five thousand dollars in marin county california breckenridge was later arrested for impersonating white zombie drummer phil Buerstate. i'm sorry <laughs> if that's how not how you pronounce his name but that's it apparently lauren dean has been repeatedly impersonated by this dude for years can you imagine impersonating lauren dean to get what though? I'm not. I mean, apparently it's to get free rehab. I don't know. To I don't defraud know what... drug rehabilitation centers. What does that say about Lauren Dean though? That's what know. I'm concerned about. I don't know. You know, when I think of Lauren Dean, you know what I think of him from? No. When I think of Lauren Dean, Liam, I think of his character of Joe from the film Say Anything. Uh, the character that breaks up with uh, Lily Taylor's character, and she continually writes songs about him. Yes. In the yes. film. Uh, and, of course, he's almost an entirely a non-entity in that film, just like he's entirely a non-entity in the film Billy Bathgate. Liam, I have a question for you. Do you think that the fact that this movie has a title like Billy Bathgate hurt it? I don't know because I don't have a sense of how this movie did. Was this movie unpopular? Uh, it was a, a notoriously a huge bomb on a... $48 million budget, it grossed a mere $15.5 million. It is certainly not a compelling name, Billy Bathgate, especially no. since it's it, it's a character entirely made up for the movie. So it's not yeah. like people are going, oh, Billy Bathgate, I know that's a hard-nosed gangster film. Is So he, I think it, the reason he's called that is because he, he lived on Bathgate Avenue. Is this right. a real place in New York City? Liam, you've been in New York City. Yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> are you then? Liam, what do you think about gangster movies? Are you a big fan? You know, I, so this I was thinking about this for a while, Doug, and, and I was thinking about it in relation to this movie, right? Generally, I like gangster movies. I tend to prefer gangster movies in which gangsters are people operating within a system that is already corrupt. Like sure. for some of these movies, what it is is these gangsters are the are the bad people who made the system bad. And the politicians and the cops, they're all corrupt because these gangsters came in. And I do mean came in because they're usually Italian immigrants or some other kind of immigrant. Sure, yeah, of course. They came in and they brought their corrupting influence from Europe and they mm. poisoned what we were doing here in the good old US of A. I much prefer the movies that are like uh, – Actually, immigrants are almost exclusively an oppressed class of people, but funny enough, despite their oppression, some of them have enough uh, deadly skills from the old country that they still (laughs) manage to carve out a niche for themselves. And while that doesn't make them good people, it's pretty clear that without them, the system is still fucked. That it's not like 
well, everything was good until these fucking gangsters showed up. It was like, well, y'all are supposed to be sheep for us to prey on, but some of you are real good with guns, so I guess we won't exploit you. Uh, and that's that's my preferred version of a gangster movie. Uh, and so, like, when a movie hits that tone of like the system is corrupt and I'm just navigating that corrupt system, I like that as long as it doesn't fall too much into valorization. Not because I'm offended at valorizing criminals, but it's just not real, right? Like, almost none of these people were heroes. Yeah. Like, even if they did good things sometimes, they weren't heroes. And I don't need them to be. I'm not a child. I don't need them to be heroes. But I want it to be clear that for a lot of them, this is like survival, right? It, it, it led to flourishing, but it was like they showed up. They could either eat shit or they could do illegal shit. So they did illegal shit instead of eating shit. And, like, you know, I, I don't think that makes them good people, but I think it's a more realistic portrayal than being like, oh, no, they just they just showed up and were just bad. I don't know. I don't know why. They just were bad. And those movies are always – whenever it, like, turns into a morality tale, who the fuck watches a gangster movie for a morality tale? It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, I mean, the original gangster movies were absolutely morality tales, if only because they almost all had to end – with the gangster being killed or imprisoned in some way, right? And then you would think that when this kind of revisionist gangster boom happened in the early 90s, that included things like Miller's Crossing and Bugsy and Mobsters, that's the one with all the the young <laughs> young Hollywood actors in it, and even Dick Tracy, and they all came out sort of uh, either contemporously or in the wake of Goodfellas, which wasn't a, uh, a movie that took place in the 1930s, was a modern-style uh, gangster mafia style movie, but obviously was a was hugely popular and one that a lot of people wanted to imitate. When I watch this movie, I think of that structure, right? This this guy, this young kid who is like fascinated by the idea of these professional criminals. But the weird thing about Billy Bathgate in particular is once this character played by Lauren Dean integrates into this group of criminals, they're already on their decline. I mean, it everyone basically knows, even from the beginning, that Dustin Hoffman's character, Dutch Schultz, is fucked. He's, he's going to be busted for tax evasion, and there's no way that he's getting out of it. So all you see is him floundering and struggling right from the beginning of the movie. It's hard to understand why even... Uh, from the beginning, that that Billy Bathgate, that Billy, uh, you know, kind of glamorizes this lifestyle. It's strange. It's it's, I yeah. There there is an element here that maybe could be compelling for two seconds, which is Billy's like, what other options do I have? Like this is the first career, you know, the career option I have, right? Like I think he even says something later about learning a skill. You know, yeah. like this is crime is the tra is the path he's chosen, and and it seems to be a pretty lucrative one. Um, but they don't explore. I, I uh, you know, I I said this to you off mic, but I, I kind of want to return to it. Uh, there are so many opportunities for this movie to be about something, yeah. whether that something is, you know, becoming a criminal or honor amongst thieves or uh, the the dichotomy of trying to be a civic person while also murdering people for funsies. Uh, but instead, it's about will Nicole Kidman's character want to have sex with Billy? Yeah, like that's most of the movie, and that is for me, and I guess for audiences is 1991 as well, the least interesting part of the movie. From the beginning of the movie, I'm thinking, so they're going to have sex. And then the whole movie's like, I don't know, are they going to do it? And you're like, yeah, they are. Come on, stop it. There's other things going on here that are much more compelling. And the movie's just utterly uninterested in anything but their, I don't know, infatuation. It's just, it's so boring. It's, it's just boring to its core. 
it's also very much a case where you're you're meant to empathize with this lead character as he makes these mistakes. But all we know at the center of this movie is, you know what? If you pursue this relationship with Nicole Kidman, it's probably going to lead in you getting killed. So maybe you shouldn't do it. And and like everyone is telling him that, including all the characters that are seeing this developing. It's like, don't do that. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. And then he's like, oops, I did it. And he does manage to kind of finagle his way out of it. But it's only because, A, as we're, uh, it's repeatedly said in the movie, he's a very lucky guy. And, uh, and B, that he has people looking out for him because he's generally decent. But that's still such a, it's such a strange thing to have someone kind of wander into a plot then wander out and basically everyone he's made a connection with is either gone or dead. It's possible to have a film in which the main point of our main character is that they are dumb. Yeah. Um, but they have to, <laughs> but they have to be charming and, and the film seems to have forgotten to make Billy charming. <laughs> I guess he's good, but I just don't find he's not given, he's given a few opportunities to be good and do the right thing. None of them are morally compelling enough that I'm like, I don't mind that he's such an idiot because he's so good. That could <laughs> that could happen. I mean, uh, let let's put it out there that like there are plenty of compelling uh, protagonists throughout history that are good and dumb, and you just find them so endearing and so good that it's still interesting to watch them be a freaking idiot for whatever amount of time. Billy Bathgate is not that. He is never compelling from scene one till the end. Even the things in the movie that work for me that kind of happen to him are not compelling because of him. You know, it, one of the one of the craziest parts for me, right, Doug, is before he gets really embedded with the gang, he's got two friends, right? He's got this dude who he buys a gun from who we never yep. really learned about. And he's got what might be that dude's sister. It's not really clear, but it's a girl yeah, that, yeah, he, yeah. that he likes. Played by Moira Kelly who uh, from uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Yeah, so... In the two scenes that she is on screen, she is 50 times more compelling than him. If the rest of the movie just followed whatever the fuck she's doing, it would be a more compelling film. It's so telling that there are multiple side characters that are more compelling than Billy Bathgate. I would argue, once we get there, I will argue, that our poor Steve Buscemi, who's given almost nothing to do in this film other than a a couple of scenes here and there and then a somewhat compelling, almost killing Nicole Kidman scene, is 50 times more compelling than Billy Bathgate, who's in this movie the whole time. (laughs) Uh, I want to kind of reiterate the things about this movie that are good since we're being sure. Yes, yes, yes. Let's do that. A, it looks very nice. Looks awesome. Uh, the cinematography by Nestor Alamandros, the uh, the cinematographer for Days of Heaven and Kramer vs. Kramer. Uh, it, it's a beautiful looking movie. The direction is fine. It's flat. I mean, there's nothing really interesting about it. The dialogue does not particularly stick out, but it also doesn't stick out necessarily in a bad way. It's really just a plot that tends to be kind of meandering in the movie. But this is a beautiful looking movie, and the production value is very high. I mean, this is a period film, and it does a very good job, I think, of capturing the feeling of that time period. So all the pieces are really in place. I think the thing about this movie that's so disappointing is that it should be so much better. Everyone involved with it is so talented, so how did it not end up better? Kind of notoriously, the director and Dustin Hoffman, they clashed on set, I guess, about the direction of uh, of Dustin Hoffman's performance. And I wonder, Liam, uh, if you could tell me, does the performance suffer from that? How is Dustin Hoffman in this film? He's not he's not particularly good. Um, he he kind of alternates between like 
Hey, I'm Dutch Schultz. I'm charming for a gangster. You know, hey, I'm Dutch Schultz. I got a couple of funny catchphrases. And then, <laughs> hey, I'm killing guys. I just freak out and kill guys. Hey, I'm mad now. I'm going to kill somebody. And then the worst part is I'm whiny about Nicole Kidman, <laughs> which like they just they don't give us enough of this character to understand why he would be so compelled by this woman. And it's just assumed like, yeah, Dutch Schultz likes blondes. This part of the movie works. And it it doesn't. It it doesn't at all. And that's partly his performance where we're not we don't really see anything about him and what he's attracted to or what he feels emotionally. It also doesn't help that Nicole Kidman isn't really given a ton to do here. She's 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 just not that compelling to me as this character who has now seduced two gangsters and is trying to seduce this teenager. You mm. know, like, she, she she does a lot plot-wise, whereas the actual performance isn't doing much. And, and I don't mean that to say because Nicole Kidman is bad. I just don't know what in the script... I don't think the script is showing us why it is that these three men now are willing to give so much for... I mean, literally, uh, uh, but Bruce Willis is character goes to the grave just thinking about this woman that's all he cares about is this woman yeah mm-hmm. for for what reason to for, for why the, oh. the, she she's <laughs> not she is not given enough time and i don't think this is because nicole kidman the character is not given enough moments in this film to be interesting seductive charming she's mostly just like there and not really doing much of anything for us to understand why all three of these men are risking everything for her Liam, you mentioned Bruce Willis there. Bruce Willis has an interesting part in this film simply because it's so small. At the time this movie came out in 1991, Bruce Willis was this massive movie star. So have him having him here in a supporting performance, it's obviously very intentional in the fact that he he shows up at the beginning of the movie, which is uh, uh, w- the rest of the movie takes place. Well, not the rest of the movie. A good chunk takes place in flashback from before, basically, his death. We see him. He already has concrete shoes on. He's about to be thrown to his death. We get a little bit more of him throughout the movie. What did you think of his performance in this movie? Because, in fact, let me jump the gun a little bit on that. One of the things that people say about Bruce Willis is how checked out he is these days from movies, how bored he seems. I will say he was very charming in this movie, and it made me miss this Bruce Willis when I watched him in it. Yeah, I agree. Considering how small the performance is and how easily he could have just phoned it in, he's pretty compelling. You know, he's not in it a ton, but when he is... He's kind of charming and mysterious. He's kind of like, uh, I mean, so the whole point is like he is one of Dutch's most trusted men right. who eventually, it, I supposedly betrays him. You know, it, it see, the evidence seems to be that he betrays him, you know, uh, and he's killed for it. And every part he does, it works. And in fact, one of the scenes that's the most um sort of weird in its differences, right, is uh, his actual death scene in which he is very compellingly asking Billy to look out for this woman. Again, right. we don't know why. It's, it hasn't been justified. And then uh, Dustin Hoffman just kicks him in the butt so he falls in the ocean with his concrete yeah. socks on. Mm-hmm. And it is... I mean, if we want to talk about phoned in, that scene is phoned in by Dustin Hoffman. There's nothing there for me. And and I, I won't say his whole performance. There's a few places where Dustin Hoffman is really like digging in a little bit um, and, and, and in unexpected ways. But that scene, the, 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 the contrast between how he is in that scene and how Bruce Willis is in that scene is like really weird. It's like a really like stark distinction. 
I think the suggestion is that for him, it's just a very matter of fact thing, even though it's also something tied up in a lot of emotion, since this was someone that he trusted very closely. But in terms of the end, it was just like, oh, now it's done, right? Just just get it done. Because that's a lot of the violence in the movie from Dustin Hoffman's character is very much, you know, someone's talking to him and he pulls out a gun and just shoots him in the head because he's like, I'm sick of this. I'm done with this. Uh, one of the memorable sequences, a very strange one in this movie is, Mike Starr, the great actor, the great uh, character actor, shows up in this movie and just mouths off to Dustin Hoffman to the point where you're like, when is Dustin Hoffman going to kill this guy? And then he just pulls out a gun, shoots him in the mouth, kills him, and uh, it becomes sort of a turning point because this is the most public of a lot of the murders in the film. And there's this big blood stain on the floor, and they don't know what to do about it. So what they do is they get Billy Bathgate to come in. And they punch him in the fucking face so he can bleed all over this spot so they have an excuse for why there's a blood stain. I I know it's supposed to be symbolic of the fact that they don't really care about, like, the underlings are, are just kind of grist for the mill. It doesn't really matter. But, like, if they had explained to him, we need this blood, certainly there was a better way of doing it than just being like, hey, Billy, smack in the face. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a strange moment in a movie. I think it's just supposed to disconnect Billy a little from the... Uh, the romanticization he has about these gangsters. Yeah, it's like a reality check for him of like, this is what it's really like, is them not respecting your body and not keeping you fully informed. And that's sort of a theme of the movie. One of the few like consistent themes is this idea that Billy wants to be fully involved and fully knowledgeable, and nobody wants that for him. Like No one's going to tell him what's fucking going on. They're all like, shut the fuck up, Billy. Like Nobody wants him to actually be you know, a, a full sort of uh, conscious member of what's happening right now. Uh, but... It's not compelling, though, and that's the bummer, right? Is that, like, that's an interesting idea, and it just seems to be left behind. The, there's a letterbox review here that says that's when Billy is his most useful in the entire movie, is just providing the blood. Yeah! <laughs> yeah! I mean, I guess he brings chocolate muffins once, right? That seems like a good thing. <laughs> I have to say, Liam, those chocolate muffins looked particularly delicious. They looked delicious. fucking good. When I saw those muffins, I thought, I'd let him in the gang, too. Yeah, yeah. right? Talk about, I mean, he's a lucky guy. Liam, any of the other performances in the film stick out to you? Like I said, a lot of familiar names here. Anyone uh, jump off the screen? Yeah, um, I liked Stephen Hill as Otto. I feel like Otto is one of the few characters that makes sense to me the whole movie. You know what I mean? Like like the, that, the Otto Berman character, it's like, he's the guy who actually has to keep shit together because Dutch is a crazy person yeah. who like doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And uh, and they all obviously have this like long relationship that is that that is so kind of th- that even though at some points in the movie Otto kind of goes too far according to Dutch and he's like he kind of has to smack him down a little bit. You know that Otto is the guy who's in control of all the money that he's in control of like, covering all the stuff and making all the payoffs. I'm a big Stephen Hill fan from Law and Order when he he was on for many years, but also from the first season of Mission Impossible, which he kind of notoriously left after the first season because he is um, he was I should say. Um, very committed to the Jewish faith and refused to work on Fridays and Saturdays, which made it very difficult for him to build his movie and television career because they tend to shoot on those days. Huh. I didn't know any of that about him, but I will say he's very good in this role. It's an important role. I wish he was given more to do because he ends up being reduced to sort of a caricature of what he could be. Sure. But, but I do like the I do like his performance as that person. Yeah, especially because he's one of the few sympathetic characters on that side of things, right? Because he actually does look out for 
uh, for Billy throughout the movie. I also liked the performance from Stanley Tucci, who, yeah, shows up here in 1991 as Lucky Luciano. Uh, just a couple of scenes, including one of the final ones in the movie. He shows a lot of charm. Uh, and that's the, that's the thing that this movie kind of is missing. There aren't a lot of charming characters, but when they're here, they kind of stick out. So Bruce Willis has that charm. Lucky Luciano shows up as charming. But for the most part, none of the lead characters have any charm at all. So it's kind of... When it leaves these charming characters and goes back to them, it feels like a disappointment again and again and again. I mean, I'll be I'll be honest. Compared to Lauren Dean, some of these other performances are actually sort of compelling. Like, yeah, I, I don't like how Nicole Kidman's character is written, but she's certainly more compelling than Lauren Dean. But again, I don't know. It's it's really hard to evaluate Lauren Dean's performance because sure. what was he supposed to do? Like, I don't know how he could have made this entirely boring character any more interesting or compelling sure i think that's very fair and in fact i feel like we're kind of ragging on him a little bit he's obviously gone on to do performances that people do find compelling i've never watched the television show terriers i know people who watched it and absolutely loved it apparently was canceled very well before its time but i know that he was on uh, that show and people seem to really dig him on it so not a not a terrible actor we're not trying to say that just a very underwritten role in an uninteresting character which is difficult when you're the title character of the goddamn movie I, I I don't like you said it's and and this is the hard thing right <clears throat> we've watched far worse movies than this and oh, not, yes. and not complain this much it's the idea that like how did you have all these it, 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 you know it's like uh you bought all the best ingredients but then you made like a, a shitty pineapple pizza or something you know what <laughs> I mean like it, it's with the elements that are in here and with this budget and with the sort of a claim this movie sort of had before it really came out as like the you know what this was going to be this should be good and the fact that it it just drags and and it just never moves you it makes it easier to like really attack it but in doing that we are being a little bit unfair it's 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 certainly better than you know uh, a talking cat or something like that <laughs> i mean that's a low bar to be to be right. frank uh, Liam, let's talk about Steve Buscemi as Irving Nitzberg in this film. Irving is one of the um, underlings of the Dutch Schultz character. He's a guy who is, he actually has kind of like a, a series of these guys that he uses for specific purposes. Uh, Irving is the guy that he sends in if he wants to have a job done cleanly. Uh, and uh, we do not get a lot of Steve Buscemi dialogue in this film. As you mentioned, there's kind of one key sequence featuring him at a racetrack. He's going to kill Nicole Kidman's character, and we have Billy who's trying to save her life, even though she is irritatingly just ignoring everything he's trying to do to help her. Uh, and that's kind of his key sequence, but it's not a very Buscemi-ish sequence. Tell me about Irving in this film. What he is asked to do, he does well. He doesn't stick out, but you believe him. There's a couple of sequences where he's just supposed to be like the dumb henchman, and you believe mm -hmm. him in that. And like, like I said, in that sequence where he's trying to kill Nicole Kidman, it's just face acting, you know, he's not saying anything. But you he's believable. And I would find him in that sequence more menacing. Like he he pulls off menacing more than Billy ever pulls off emotive of any kind. And and and, and I and I feel bad about that. Again, I, I'm not saying because Lauren Dean is a bad actor, it's probably what he was asked to do. It's just so interesting to be like if we weren't talking about this movie, if I had just watched it and then you asked me about it later, I'd remember Steve Buscemi more than I would remember Lauren Dean, quite honestly. And that's a bummer. That's a real bummer for Lauren Dean and for what this movie could be. 
what this movie kind of reminded me of as well is that the great character actors that includes people like Steve Buscemi and actually Xander Berkeley is in this movie as well, is that they have a distinctive enough look that you can pick them out of a crowd very easily, which is important in this movie because there's a part where he's literally in a crowd and you have to be able to pick him out uh, all throughout it. I mean, the, 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 the filmmaking isn't going to let you forget who he is or, or what, uh, what he's all about. But you're right. He does have that kind of intensity and threat behind him. And that's pretty interesting to say because this movie kind of removes one of the key Steve Buscemi elements, which is his voice. He doesn't have many lines. A lot of it is just kind of glances in the movie. So, you know, it's kind of representative of a skill we don't really talk about that even outside of that kind of motor-mouthed, high-pitched voice that Steve has that he is also a great actor and a physical actor, and that's really on display here. Again, there's not much for him to do. He gets a lot of screen time, but he's just a heavy in the movie. It's kind of weird to even think of Steve Buscemi as a heavy. But I think both of the heavies that are working with uh, Dutch are more memorable than you would think. Like you, yeah. you could say, like, yeah, I remember those guys. You know what I mean? If 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 this was your first Steve Buscemi movie, you might remember him in something else later, be like, oh, I saw him in something. He was like a gangster. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think he leaves an impression. Yeah, absolutely. He make, he does leave an impression. And this does seems to be a key part of this era of Steve Buscemi roles, right? Because he's in King of New York for a really short amount of time. He's in Miller's Crossing for a really short amount of time. And, uh, and this is the year before. I think it's the same year as Living in Oblivion or maybe the year after. And then it's the year before uh, Reservoir Dogs. This is the Steve Buscemi who's being recognized and it will be like seen in so many movies that in the next couple of years, his career is going to legitimately explode. We're just, in fact, we're just two years away from Ed and his dead mother. (laughs) So obviously he's going to be moving to lead roles pretty soon at this point, still supporting roles in big Hollywood movies that are unfortunate failures. In fact, would that be fair to say is Billy Bathgate an unfortunate failure? Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I think that's fair to say. Um, yeah, I again, I don't know if it's just the story itself that maybe they thought there was more there than there is, but what is on screen is not compelling, and I don't know that it had to be that way. It's, I, I, I don't know that, because sometimes it's like, well, of course that movie's bad. It had to be bad. Uh, I think there was an opportunity for something interesting here, and they just don't get there. Liam, we watch a lot of movies made on very low budgets on a variety of our programs. Uh, We cover a lot of movies that don't have a lot of talent necessarily behind the camera or in front of the camera. Uh, I, in my other podcasts, I cover a lot of micro-budget films. When I'm watching those, I have certain expectations when I go in of the quality that I'm going to receive. When I have a movie like this where everybody is top-notch and they had the money to do very well and it ends up like this, something that's kind of tedious to watch and isn't very engaging, that's more of a disappointment, right? Because my expectations were, I think, reasonably high for what we should expect out of this. The fact is, aside from some memorable performances and a few memorable moments, like when the gangsters come to the small town and try to come off like decent fellas so they get a better jury for the trial, this movie just doesn't have much memorable about it it's a movie that two days after you watch it you'll forget almost everything about it and that is a real condemnation of a movie that so many people put so much time and effort into so yeah it's a disappointment it's kind of a a bummer it's a bummer to think about billy bathgate the bummer movie i just would rather a movie like this take a few wild swings so at least there's something fun yeah it just never really gets there Never really gets there. I think that's very safe to say. Liam, what are we watching on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids? Well, Doug, we're going to be covering the 1992 film In the Soup. In the Soup. Directed Uh, by Alexandre Rockwell. 
<laughs> I, I hope that's how it's pronounced. Uh, I have also, no idea. Also co-written by him, uh, starring Steve Buscemi, Seymour Cassell, and Jennifer Beals. This is a movie, I just read an article about it recently. I know it's uh, currently streaming on Amazon Prime in the U.S. Uh, it, the, the, the article I read was very complimentary. It's not a film I've ever seen before. I'm a big fan of Seymour Cassell, who we just talked about in uh, Valentino on one of our other uh, programs, Praising Kane. Uh, and Steve Buscemi is the star of it. Like I said, 1992, a breakout year for Steve Buscemi. Well, we're going to see an example of it in, in the soup on the next episode, Liam. Very exciting. Very exciting, Doug. Very exciting. Are you excited, Liam? I don't feel the excitement. I'm so excited! Well, Bonk, if people want to check out more oh, about uh, <laughs> How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, or other podcasts, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can head over to Cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. They can check out this show and a whole family of shows from our flagship podcast, Cinepunks, to our friends over at Horror Business, The Evil Eye, uh, Fat Girl Hacks, uh, uh, Tomb of Ideas, a bunch of shows over there doing amazing work. Uh, there's also a variety of writing over there, including a new review of the film Roadrunner about Anthony Bourdain. Uh, if they want to dive into the archives of this show and check out not just our Steve Buscemi work, but our uh, coverage of Carol Kane's uh, filmography, our coverage of Jackie Chan's filmography, our dive into genre cinema across the uh, continent, continent across the world, uh, <laughs> they can head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. That's where all of our archive is uh, for them to explore. They can also find us on social media. Cinepunks is, of course, C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, but they can follow this show specifically at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G, on Twitter, uh, Doug. They can also shoot us an email. Do we have an email? Yeah, we have an email that you can connect, uh, contact us via cinemasmorgasbord.com uh, or via our various social medias. You can also do a search for Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook as well. You can also follow both Liam and myself on Twitter. Liam at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And me, Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And all of that is linked on the site as well. Uh, Liam, also uh, recently, Rough Cut Shirts, which you're involved in, a, a company that releases kind of uh, movie-themed uh, T-shirts, they recently released their... Your, I should say, Mandy theme shirts. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, so this is our first officially licensed deal. Uh, where a company contacted us and said, "We want you to do a design for Mandy." So we have, um, from what I can tell, the only the second Mandy shirt to have Mandy on it. Which I don't know why that didn't occur to other people, but uh, we have a shirt with actually with Mandy on it. We have two different shirts featuring the wonderful uh, Nicholas Cage. We also have a slip cover for your record player that has uh, Mandy's face on it, and we have a Cheddar Goblin dad hat that looks awesome. Well, I think all of it looks terrific. I'm hoping people are going out there getting the Mandy merchandise and, of course, all the other shirts over at roughcutfanclub.com. But for now, Liam, I think that's all I can talk about. My voice has been used up. I need to forget that people call you bonk, and I'm going to call you it forevermore. I'm going to forget it. Forget that I'm going to call you bonk. On the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, In the Soup from 1992. Good night, everyone. Night-night.